You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Proof Text. I am Michael Halcombe and I'm excited about this episode because we have our friend Andrew Case with us and you're going to love hearing uh, some of the stuff he has to share. Andrew, we just started doing these um kind of interviews or chats with people, and we're calling this series People We Love. So hopefully uh, you feel loved. Awesome. We want you to know that we uh, we love what you guys are doing, and we, we appreciate you and your, uh, your wife's ministry. And so I'm excited for people who may not be familiar with what you're doing, although I would assume that most of our listeners uh, have uh, picked up on some of the stuff you guys are doing. But if not, um, you know, it'll be good to introduce them to y'all. So why don't we just start there? Why don't you tell us a little bit about who you are? Like, where are you and what are you doing these days? Thanks. Yeah. So my wife, Bethany, is the star of the show, uh, probably why we're here. Uh, She does Aleph with Beth. So we teach Hebrew to the world through mainly through YouTube. And our website, freehebrew.online. We live in Mexico. Uh, We're both linguists. We both studied Hebrew in different ways. Um, Mm. I did an MDiv at Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. And I um, work as a Bible translation consultant here in Mexico with different indigenous groups that are doing projects for their their, uh, language. So... Uh, yeah, that's that's what I do on part time. You know, helping right now. I'm helping a team uh, check the book of First Kings, and um, then other part time is helping with Aleph with Beth and teaching the world Hebrew. So excellent. Yeah. So, um, so you you had mentioned that you and your wife had studied Hebrew different ways. Let's. Let's talk a little bit about that. Parse that out for us. Yeah. So I studied the traditional seminary way, the typical way where uh, some people call it the drill and kill method. And uh, <laughs> it's basically uh, you learn a lot of paradigms and uh, learn a lot of grammar and a lot of uh, vocab drills and stuff like that. Um not very natural, not very effective. I, I found that it was definitely not very effective for me and uh, always felt like I was kind of drowning and trying to keep my head above water, but never really swimming, never really uh, enjoying the process and just feeling dumb most of the time. And then my wife, she was, you know, we had never met up until later, you know, later in life for me. And she was always a lover of languages from the time she was young and just learning different scripts for fun, learning uh, hieroglyphics for fun. And then she eventually studied linguistics with uh, SIL in North Dakota. And then she eventually went to Columbia and then was inspired to do this Hebrew program at the Jerusalem Center for Bible Translation in Israel. And they do a totally different methodology, which I'm sure you've talked about on your podcast, which is a kind of a communicative or what we call comprehensible input methodology. 
that is much more natural and is somewhat like what you would do as a child learning your mother tongue, where you're immersed in the language without any kind of translation and uh, you internalize the language and build fluency uh, in a really natural way and in a fun way. So she got to study Hebrew that way uh, mostly, and that was really a game changer uh, for her just to, she was one of the star students in the class. And then when that ended, I was, when we got married, I just encouraged her, hey, you got the privilege of, you know, a very few people in the world to learn Hebrew this way. It's, it's a, it's a luxury method for most people. Um, mm. Cause it used to be, you know, you go to Israel, you pay 12 to $40,000. You gotta, you, you gotta go to Israel. First of all, I mean, not everyone yeah. has the time or the money to do that uh, for months at a time. And um, I was like, yeah, you're the one of the, yeah, I would have loved to have done this. I, I never had the luxury of doing that. And so let's, let's, turn around and give that away to as many people as, as possible. And, and that way she'll keep learning and I'll, I'll get to learn that way too. And so that's kind of uh, our story there. Hmm. I want to come back to the giving away because that's been a, a, a theme that you and I have been talking about for some time now. And we'll, we'll yeah. try to circle back to that. Um, so you did the, you call it the drill and kill. I actually have never heard that. I've been around language stuff for a long time. I've never heard that that uh, nomenclature, which is, I think, pretty accurate in a lot of ways. Uh, often called the grammar translation mm-hmm. uh, method. And then so Beth um, did this more communicative approach. And then you guys started creating videos i wonder how has your your hebrew fluency or hebrew language skill developed as you've been doing this like along the way yeah dramatically and i will say that you know one of the reasons we're i'm passionate about this is because i developed really bad habits and and i think this happens to a lot of people through the grammar translation method and it, it trains you to, first of all, look at the language like a code and to not read for fluency, but read for analysis. So you get caught up, distracted constantly by, okay, what is the parsing of this word? Which stem is it? You know, which root is it? All of that stuff, which is basically irrelevant if you actually have internalized the language. And mm-hmm. so that those habits that I developed over years of seminary because I took a lot of Hebrew in seminary and it was just over and over. Like, this is what I have to master. I have to be able to read and then instantly in my head, parse every word. And um, it doesn't matter how much text I can actually read and understand. It just matters how much of it I can analyze. And so that, um, those bad habits are hard to kill. And so it's taken a long time for me to, to grow out of some of those. And I'm, I still have that baggage hanging on me in a lot of ways that I'm, I'm working on. 
but uh, through this method, though, it, it, it does. I can tell the difference. I can tell the difference uh, every day. And um, I'm not as diligent a student as probably a lot of our, the people following us because I guess one of the sacrifices of teaching the world Hebrew is that you spend a lot of time skills, doing sure stuff besides actually just enjoying can help. Right. reading From lots of text, and you know. Stories, and uh, and that's Close one of my weaknesses right now. So I, you know, if I had done, if I, you know, sat down and said, I'm going to read an hour of Hebrew a day and, and that kind of thing, um, had that kind of discipline up, up to this point, I think I would be way further. We have people who have who've learned with our videos and our videos don't even cover the whole gamut of, of Hebrew so far. You know, we, we we're only up to like 250 videos. And we, we need to make at least 500 or so. And if we have, we have people who have told us, you know, they've just made it through these. And then just by re using a reader's Hebrew Bible, uh, you know, an hour a day or something, they've made it through the entire Pentateuch and things like that. Mm. Just amazing progress um, that we've seen. So it's, it's encouraging. Yeah. Wow. And you guys uh, recently received some sort of award from YouTube, I understand. <laughs> yeah, like, for ah, crossing the 100,000 subscribers. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Pretty yeah, crazy. That's, so, so your reach is certainly uh, growing, and this your, your Aleph with Beth ministry has really uh, taken off. Tell me a little bit about your translation work. Like, what, is, what does that look like? Give me... Like, mm -hmm. imagine I, you're, you're taking me on site with you somewhere. Like, what would we be doing on any given day? Yeah, so a lot of it's office work. Uh, but as a consultant, my job is to do quality control on the translation. So I work with the, the translators. So they're, they're doing the bulk of the work. And they, they do a back translation into Spanish in this case. Uh, so they'll back trans, translate what they have translated in their language into a very literal Spanish. So I can see a kind of a, a window into what decisions they've made when they've translated, what kind of idioms they've used, um, what kind of uh, other things that are going on, whether they've jumped over something, missed something, whatever. And so through that back translation, I can ask a lot of questions and I can make suggestions. And so I go through, we use a special software called Paratext so you could be remote. They live in another village about um, maybe nine hours drive away near the coast of Mexico. And so I don't actually have to live in their village. I'm able to live here in the, the city of Oaxaca and um, I'll write notes kind of like on a Google Doc. You know, I'll write lots of notes on their translation and, uh, and send those off. And then we'll have some Skype calls or conversations go back and forth about making these decisions and and you'll be surprised the kinds of stuff that come up like for instance i i i spent an entire two days uh and when i was checking first kings on cult prostitution because it was something that i did not know enough about and we ran into this issue where the word kadashim is they were wanting to translate it as sodomy or sodomites and that's actually what the kjv does mm -hmm. and uh that's what some of the old some of the old spanish translations do and then and then there's other translations that say cult prostitutes and 
and then there's other stuff. So I had to do a lot of research. This is one of those things you never know what you're going to end up diving into, finding scholarly articles on and trying to dig up things and making phone calls to professors because the cult prostitution issue is actually a really hard issue. I'm going to do a podcast on it someday, someday soon. <laughs> yeah. So, tell yeah. us a little bit about your podcast. You, you run a podcast as well. Yeah. My podcast is called working for the word. And so you can go to working for and it's basically all about Bible translation, the history of it, uh, behind the scenes, um, you name it. So anything you can imagine, especially to serve people who are supporting Bible translation and they're wondering like, what, what is actually going on behind the scenes? You know, mm, yeah. um, it's like, there's this very hard, it's very hard to find, uh, very clear and concrete examples and just narrative of what actually is going on and what kinds of changes are happening on the field in Bible translation, because there's a lot of ongoing developments that, People just aren't aware of. A lot of people are under the impression that, oh well, you just go in like Hudson, like uh, Hudson Taylor, or um, I mean Adoniram Judson, or uh, William Carey, and, and you're just going to pump out a translation yourself after you learn the language for 12 years and stuff like that. And they, they're they're kind of stuck in that kind of um, ancient mentality of how things used to work with Bible translation. And there's been a lot of changes. And so I try to cover all of that and keep people aware and challenge also challenge the organizations involved in translation to, uh, to reform in different ways to, to improve in different ways, because uh, you know, as, as professional development, I'm learning a lot and I also want to help improve the whole field. And, and there's a lot of ways it can improve. So yeah. Is there, so before you had mentioned like picking up some bad habits when you were learning Hebrew and sort of there's mm -hmm. a, there's a way of reading Hebrew that's done just for analysis. Are, is there a place, I'm, I'm assuming there's a place, but is there a place for that kind of analysis at all? Like within the translation process or just the overall exegetical process? Um, and if so, where would you put it, or is there not a place? It basically depends on what your goal is, I would say, and who you are. And so I, I would say, you know, like, let's just start with making Hebrew normal for Christian discipleship in the church. Uh, that's what I want mm -hmm. uh, to preach. And then people can go all kinds of different directions with that. And uh, some people will want to get into the weeds. Some people want to want to nerd out about those things. Some some people are just wired differently. Uh, and so, yeah, if you want to do that, I think in, in, if if you want to be a professor, sure, you probably need to do that. If you wanted to go into Bible translation, you know, I'm training translators in Hebrew. Uh, I've been doing that over the last two years, two and a half years. And we do, we do talk about some of that, but I always remind them, this will not make you know the language. It's, it's a different right. thing. It's a different thing. So they're separate things. Uh, you don't imagine that you know the language because you know that this is a past participle. That doesn't make you actually know the language. Just keep those things in different compartments and you'll be fine. But don't don't think that in order for me to 
grow in my fluency, I have to learn to parse. And don't think that now that I know how to parse, I, I am now a Hebrew expert either. So I think if you just have the right mentality, and that's right. the battle um, for most people, because there's so much bad language learning um, myths floating around for everyone. Yeah. And no matter who they are, and those get picked up just in the air by so many people, and and they set themselves up for a difficult road if they're thinking, okay, the real language learning is happening when I'm learning that this is a you know a cal uh, a vayikdol or whatever kind of verb, and um, so I'm just constantly trying to drill that in, like okay. That doesn't matter if you're trying to build fluency. It just doesn't matter. Yeah. So, yeah, those, the, yeah, I think, um, like, so for Bible translation, going back to that, uh, for the kind of uh, precision that's required in Bible translation, that will often come down to not, not necessarily a knowledge of fluency, but a knowledge to be able to use the tools, to be able to parse something out and do a really in-depth dive uh, then, yeah, you'll you'll need some of those tools, but it's just a t- different toolbox. Yeah, yeah. So there's a difference, right, in in knowing the language and knowing about the language. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Two, two very different things. Yeah, one of the things we, mm-hmm. we try to do on the podcast episodes here uh, is try to sometimes find a balance of the two. So when Fred and I are on an episode together, right, he he loves what you say, geeking out about, I don't know, like a grammatical or syntactical construction. Uh, yeah. I'll be reading the stuff aloud and, and making points about pronunciation. So it's kind of interesting trying to strike a little bit of a balance there. Um, mm-hmm. uh, even across our Glows House sort of resources and curriculum, trying to do that as well. But yeah, um, well, one of the, I mentioned earlier, Oh, one of the things that you and I had had a discussion about, which I, I find kind of endlessly fascinating um, and I'm and thinking a lot about these days. I've actually been thinking about for a while. One of your, your things, uh, I don't know if hobby horse or whatever is the right word for it, but <laughs> yeah. is you're all about like making sure the resources are free. Right. And yeah. uh, that this and is unencumbered. sort of been built in, yeah, built into what you're doing from day one. So uh, I, I really want to talk about that. I want to give our listeners a chance to sort of hear <clears throat> your angle on this. And I'm not going to try to like debate or anything, but I think you have an interesting sure. perspective. And, uh, you know, it's it'd be worth discussing. So if you're up yeah. for talking a little bit about that, uh, kind of share with us the impetus uh, mm-hmm. for this. Let's create resources and make them free and, as you said, unencumbered. Yeah. So I was influenced early on by John Piper in a lot of ways and his ministry and the philosophy of ministry that they have since the beginning of giving away his books for free. Um, even the physical books, I when I was in college, uh, they had the whatever you can afford policy. I was very, very poor in college, <laughs> mm. and as most people are. And so I, I actually availed myself of that offer 
And it was incredible, you know, because they say whatever you can afford or free, you know, if you can't afford at all. And they'll send you the physical books. And that really made an impact on me early oh. on. So I think that model uh, stuck with me. And so when I started recording music, I, I'm a musician, do a lot of songwriting and recording. And uh, I wanted to do the same thing and just just give it away, just the free download, no strings attached kind of thing as well. And then when I started writing books, um, did the same thing. But basically, um, there there's this, this uh, I think, mentality in the West. I, I just want to, you know, maybe prick everyone's thoughts a little bit with this. But I think it's important for us to, uh, to think about, uh, consider that in the West, in, in America, in, in North America, which is the richest civilization in all of human history and also the most materialistic civilization and society in all of human history, if that's the case, I think it's worth considering that we may have a blind spot when it comes to the commercialization of Christianity. Mm. And so uh, this, I kept running into again and again, you know, I had the example of Piper, but I saw a lot of people were not, were basically doing the opposite, just making it as difficult as possible to get hand, your hands on gospel ministry resources uh, if you didn't pay for them, if there was not an exchange, a commercial exchange. And um, the more and more I rub shoulders with other people, I, I started reading a book called The Christian Commons, uh, read another book called The Dorian Principle. Both of those books are free. Um, I started to develop a more robust kind of philosophy of this. So uh, not just free uh, as, as in free of cost, but also free as in freely, uh, no chains, no strings, no obstacles in your way, no friction in the way of you getting to these kinds of resources. Because a lot of the times the friction itself is what turns people away. You know, it may be free, but they have to fill out a form or they have to do this or that. And so um, we, I think just the warp and woof of the Bible, of God's character. You know, we can talk about individual verses and argue about those, but I think if you're really a careful student of Scripture, there is a radical generosity in the heart of God, a radical generosity. He gives up his only son, which is like kind of like the baseline of, of like Sunday school Christianity, right? John 3.16 you know, he gives up his only son, his own life, so that we can have life without cost, without money, without price. So uh, it's, that, I think, informs or should inform the way more people do ministry. Now, this is never to say that ministry should not be supported. It just shouldn't be sold as a commercial exchange. And that's the difference. It's very, it's a, it's a big struggle for a lot of people to grasp, but I, I just want to say it again. Ministry should be supported and supported generously, but just not sold. Um, and I, I think we see this all throughout Paul's ministry. Of course, we see it throughout Jesus, his example. Um, and so I just would challenge people, you know, whether or not you think that Paul is pres Paul's example is prescriptive, 
um, at least consider where are the guardrails for us as Christians? Where are where do we find guardrails in Scripture against or for limiting the commercialization of Christianity? And if you say, well, it's okay for us to sell a book that talks about the gospel, but it's not okay for me to sell my prayers for people, ask people to pay me money to pray for them, then why is that? Why is that? Where can you point in Scripture to, to say that? Because I think most people would agree that's a, kind of a grievous um, distortion of Christianity to be charging someone for a baptism, to baptize them, or charging someone for, to pray for them, or charging them to come in on a Sunday morning to a church service to hear a sermon. And so I think we're all kind of caught right now in this kind of inconsistency. We've compartmentalized some things in in our our Western Christianity, and then we've kind of given a blanket approval to a lot of other ways of commercializing Christianity. And so um, I would just encourage people, you know, let's let's reflect the the generous, radically generous heart of God and the way we do ministry. And I think that would mean at least, you know, giving up some of the luxuries that we may get if we were to make it a, into a business. Um, if God was able to give his only son, um, what can we give up so that others who are less privileged, who may not be able to afford a Hebrew course ever, uh, no matter how cheap it is, who may never be able to, uh, afford, you know, a a $200, uh, commentary or academic volume, whatever it is. How how are we laying down our lives, or as Paul says in Galatians, bearing one another one another's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ? And part of what we see as our our goal is to bear people's burdens. And I think this is this is key. We were talking about methodology and in language learning, and there are a lot of teachers and professors who believe that their job is to cast burdens upon their students and just make Hebrew and Greek or whatever as burdensome as possible because that's what happened to them. You know, they kind of had, had to slog through it. And uh, they're like, well, we're going we're gonna to make you guys all suffer as much as possible and groan. And at the end of the day, that's just not the heart of Christ. I don't think that is the law of Christ. We want to bear people's burdens. And part of that is we bear the cost. But we also bear the, the the issue of making it as palatable, as enjoyable, and as accessible to people as possible. And uh, even to the point of the comfort of their own home, you know, it's one thing to be like, well, yeah, come to it, fly over to Israel and, and then you can have the course for free. Uh, well, that's that's not bearing that burden because they can't leave their family or their job or whatever. Um, yeah. So we're trying to. Just think, how can we bear people's burdens and and fulfill the law of Christ in this area? And that's this is how we're we're moving forward. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah, it's very intriguing. It, a lot of that really resonates with me. I know we've we've talked before. Well, I've I've voiced some of my concern about you know uh, proof texting and that 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 sort mm-hmm. of thing that coming from some of that corner that doesn't resonate so well with me, but yeah, having that foundational baseline of the radical generosity, uh, I think that's a really good, 
and really even just a beautiful uh, uh, starting point. And that that resonates with me deeply. Um, I think really just with the ethos of Glosa House in general, we've we've done our best from the start to make the things we do have as innovative, accessible, and affordable as possible. And mm-hmm. uh, that continues to be an aim. But yeah, this is an ongoing discussion between Fred and I and now some others within the organization about uh, what would it look like to move more uh, in the direction of even more radical generosity. And um, right. so, yeah, and I have, I've really appreciated the interaction that we've had, uh, you know, the two of us. Great. Uh, yeah. with, with regard to that. So, yeah. Um, One I thing I would add of, to that yeah, go ahead. Yeah. is that, um, you know, so many people, I think they want to be generous, but we are stuck. We really have a very seriously um, saturated culture with this kind of, you've got to monetize everything. Like the, the church itself is screaming mm-hmm. that at you left and right either through example or just just straight up, you know, the the first thing, you know, everyone's going to ask you is like, oh, and we get this all the time, you know, oh, you got you got 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. I hope you're getting paid by YouTube for that uh, or whatever, you know, you're, you're running ads and 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 even at the, at the ad level, we don't run ads. That's our policy. We will never run ads on our YouTube channel mm. because what that's doing is is we are once again we're placing the burden of time and attention and annoyance on the people we're trying to serve and saying oh watch this ad so we can so we can make some more you know just a little bit more god has already provided more than we deserve uh, through the support of generous givers why do we need to add that on the top and kind of double dip you know like our master hasn't he's given us a paycheck but you know we we want the we want the the the, the Mercedes though. <laughs> mm. We want the Mercedes. We got we gotta we gotta keep up with the Joneses over there. They've got a nicer house. Um, whatever. And so many Christians, I think, are falling into that trap, and they're like, you know, God is already providing for them in so many ways, but then they want to be like, oh, let's let's see how we can get even more money for uh, for working for the Lord of the Harvest, and. The Lord of the Harvest will give you the fair wages that you deserve. You know, um, he's he's faithful, and and if you test that faithfulness, I think he'll he'll amaze you. And so, anyway, um, I just want to reemphasize: like, it's possible to do this, but it's really hard in our cultural climate, in our mm. cultural moment. That is so. I think this is like the big blind spot. Of our time, you know, throughout Christian history, everyone, every generation has had their serious blind spots, right? Mm. Which is why C.S. Lewis said, "Read a lot of dead people, um, because they have different blind spots than you, and so they'll help fill in those those gaps." And uh, this, I think, is just one of those things that you know, fifty, a hundred years from now, people will look back and they'll be. Probably a little bit. It'll be like looking back and 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 uh, like we do at Jonathan Edwards having slaves, or or George mm. Whitfield having slaves. You know, 
and we'll be like, how in the world, you know, could this happen? Uh, it was their cultural moment, you know, and it's very much, I would say, like that for us now with this whole commercialization of Christianity. Hmm. Yeah, it's tough. I mean, the commercial commercialization of Christianity and being a, a business owner, <laughs> although I don't, I don't take paychecks or I haven't taken paychecks from Glosa House. That's not Fred and I have not done that since we've started this. We just keep reinvesting all of it back into the company, but because um, there are real live costs that go with, yeah, you know, making making this happen, like getting getting booth space at conferences like SBL. That's crazy expensive, mm-hmm. and getting the resources printed and then shipped and then to SBL. You know, there's a lot of real live overhead costs. Um, yeah. I've never really felt like I was selling Christianity or selling the gospel. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, when I hear you talk about it, it, it at least gives me pause to think about, wait, have I been doing that? Like, um, and, you know, reevaluating, reevaluating whether I have been or not. So uh, I, yeah. I, and, and I think I've, everyone like you is well-meaning most people. Yeah. yeah, totally well-meaning. And, yeah. and it's it's probably one of those just um, unwittingly, you know, just going with what everyone else does. So, I mean, why not? Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, when we started, when we started this back in, well, a, a little over a decade ago, uh, one of the big frustrations was with the costs of resources from other sort of mainstream publishers, right? Mm-hmm. Also that they right. weren't willing to uh, create resources like audio, video, because um, they didn't have the capacity at the time. So that's, that was a big part of the reason why we started to do sort of innovative, affordable, accessible mm-hmm. stuff. And um, I feel like we've continued to really do that. And uh, so we're, we're thinking through what, what does the future of Glossa House look like and uh, how does this generosity, radical generosity, uh, you know, like work, uh, stay integrated mm-hmm. in that and, and maybe start to look a little bit different. So we have several options right. on the table that we're discussing and I'll be interested to see where it goes. I don't have lateral sort of power to make the decision, but uh, it's it's interesting to be having these these kinds of discussions anyways. Yeah. 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 So, yeah. There's a new website called copy.church. I would encourage people to check out. And if anyone's wondering, like, what are the practical ways around this? Because a lot of people just pragmatically think, well, there's no other, there's no other way. Like we're stuck with it. The models and the massive system that we live in. Uh, copy.church actually gives some, some really compelling alternatives to to how to 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 do do this in a, a more biblical way, I guess I would say, um, or that reflects that radical generosity and just the the pragmatics involved in doing that, and, and a lot of good ideas there. A lot of other yeah. really interesting stuff on that website, but um, remember, yeah, I, I understand it's logistically very complicated. Yeah, I remember when I first discovered that. Rupert Murdoch, one of the richest men on the planet, was, was sort of the guy behind Harper Collins and Zondervan, 
and uh, how hmm. disgusted I was. I just started watching uh, a series about the Murdoch family and sort of that empire that they've built, you know, wow. starting out of Australia. And now it's pretty much the largest media conglomerate print press um, mm. video audio in the world. Right. So that one wow. family and really that one individual has the largest monopoly on print audio and video in the world. So it's, you, you walk in yeah. any Christian bookstore here, for example, in the United States, and you see, oh, the fireman's Bible or the police officer's Bible or the gardener's Bible. And it's really mm -hmm. all just the same scripture, yeah. right? But with, in, a, in a different cover and with some different questions or things mm -hmm. highlighted in it. And, you know, knowing that Murdoch has the rights to, or someone in that affiliation has rights to scripture translation yeah. is just making billions uh, yeah. off of it really doesn't sit well with me. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, for I, sure. I, I feel yeah, the, where you're coming from. Yeah. The, the issue too, is that, you know, the, the, the local church, the more that we take this out of the, the responsibility of the local church and farm it out to so-called professionals, um, the more we, we end up with these kinds of things happening. And so I, I think that's, you know, just like with biblical counseling, when that left the responsibility of the church, it used to be, you know, pastors, that's what they did. They counseled people mm. for free. And then they they farmed it out. They're like, ah, oh, that's too hard. I don't want to do that stuff. <laughs> Let's farm it out to professionals and have them pay. You know, people pay sixty dollars an hour for some to get to get truth and wisdom. But um, then you know you you have uh, even with missions as well. And so if the local church would just take more responsibility, the local church has been doing non-commercial stuff for centuries, right? Uh, they don't sell anything. They, at least they, they, they shouldn't. <laughs> um, but they're not selling tickets on Sunday morning. They're not charging for baptisms. They're not charging admission to the Lord's Supper. Um, and, and yet their overhead expenses are covered through the free donations of, of the people mm. of God. And so why why can't a conglomerate of churches just say, hey, we're going to have a publishing house and we're going to publish stuff. Uh, we're going to pay, you know, through the support of our people. Uh, we're going to pay for great typesetters and we're going to pay for uh, amazing editors and, and who work full time to produce beautiful books that are free digitally and that we sell at cost physically, you know. Yeah. Um, to just cover the physical costs, and then that's it. You know, is the the local church can do that? They've been doing it. They do it all the time, uh, without a, a kind of monetization model. Uh, and if they just said, "Hey, let's let's take this under our our wing," you know, and and make it work, and it doesn't have to be under Murdoch's and all those other people. Um, so yeah, mm. yeah, man. Well, I I, I appreciate. Uh the fire you're trying to light under people with this. Um, yeah, it's always yeah. A, <laughs> a good discussion to be having. And um, every time we're talking about it, I, I feel more and more inclined in that direction. Um, 
So yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I was promoting. I'm starting to do a little bit of work with. Uh, do you know? Are you familiar with StepBible.org? Familiar yeah. With that? Yeah. So yeah. I know. I know the work. designer too. Yeah, uh, Dave Instone Brewer and uh, mm-hmm. some of those guys. I'm starting to do a little bit of work with them and um, just to see all the work they've done. They're doing the same thing. Everything's absolutely mm-hmm. free. Like, uh, yeah, I love done, it. Yeah, done by, you know, uh, donations of time and sweat mm-hmm. equity and some financial mm-hmm. donations here and there. But uh, mm-hmm. you, the thing is, when you see that, when when you see what you guys are doing, when you see what Step Bible is doing, uh, other things like you really can't argue with it. Like sure. there isn't really an argument, right? right? It's not just uh, a, a pie in the sky kind of uh, imaginary concept. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I will say there are there are some churches here in the states that do charge uh, for seating though on Sunday mornings. Uh, <laughs> Oh, and, um, you 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 uh, had to to ruin my my blissful ignorance. <laughs> uh, yeah, there, I, I do know uh, that people charge for prayers. Have you seen that? I have not seen that. No, that, I, I, no. I've actually seen a website um, that this is real. Um, I, I don't remember the website, but there's people who they charge for per hour of prophetic prayer. It's like three hundred fifty dollars per hour. That's wild. I mean, that sounds like fortune telling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like if you've got a really important decision, that's kind of how they they frame it. Really important decision coming up or really important business venture or something like that. They'll give you like uh, an hour of prophetic prayer um, for starting at 350 an hour. Same. I mean, charging for healing, too. Right. I mean, right. We've Mm -hmm. seen so many sort of word of faith conferences happen where you pay the admission and you go in and maybe yeah. you're going to get fake healed. Right. Um, yeah. You know, that, that sort of thing. So mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, and not, not to be sort of a bully. I know in my own Wesleyan tradition, really within the Methodist tradition, there used to be uh, a charging for seats. I think that's actually, uh, you maybe have heard of the free Methodists. Well, yeah. They're called free Methodists because they didn't charge for seating. It was free. (laughs) Exactly. So this was this was the pew rents of the 1700s. Yeah, yeah. And that's that's actually just one of those examples of things that we look back and we're like, wow, what complete unbiblical morons uh, that they were. Everyone was doing this. Everybody we respect, basically. You know, John Newton, some of the great people, heroes of the faith. It was just their cultural climate that they were living in and just like no one ever challenged it and and yeah. so yeah that's what i'm trying to do now is is just challenge it you know yeah um, that's great I, i've heard that the the mega church lakewood in texas still does some of that the the cost of the mm. seats rises the closer you get up to mr osteen um but oh my I, word wow I, that's what i've heard anyways but um, yeah. Well, I, I really appreciate what you're doing. I'm glad, you know, we've connected and appreciate the way you, you continue to spur me on and uh, all your your My olives. Pleasure. Beth, Beth's doing an incredible job uh, yeah. with the Hebrew stuff. And I hope you guys mm-hmm. will really keep that up and, uh, yeah. and make that last. Yeah. Yeah, it's a joy. It's a joy to, to serve our students all around the world and, and especially see the global church growing in its 
it's really surprising. You might be surprised that the the global church, you know, a lot of the marginalized languages of the world are are hungry for this, and that's why Ooh. we have a hundred thousand subscribers. It's not because um, it's all from the U.S. In fact, the most subscribers of any country is Brazil, and uh, oh, wow. so. There's just a hunger. You've got tons in India, just tons in Latin America in general, a lot of in, in Indonesia. So God's doing a work there, and I, and I we're we're excited to see. You know, in a generation, mm. a lot of the great Hebrew scholars God raises up to be from some of these countries and not from the U.S. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. Well, we like to end the episode with a parting shot, a quote that may be related to what we're talking about or completely unrelated. Uh, no. you have anything for us? I do. Martin Luther, this quote from Martin Luther haunted me for years. He says, it is a sin and shame not to know our own book or to understand the speech and words of our God. It is still a greater sin and loss that we do not study the languages, especially in these days when God is offering and giving us men and books in every facility and inducement to this study and desires his Bible to be an open book. Oh, mm. how happy the dear church fathers would have been if they had had our opportunity to study the languages and come thus prepared to the Holy scriptures. What great toil and effort it cost them to gather up a few crumbs while we with half the labor, yes, almost without any labor at all can acquire the whole loaf. Oh, how their efforts puts our indolence to shame. Mm, yeah, humbling. Mm, thank you for sharing that. And thank you for your time, Andrew. Uh, God bless you and Bethany and your ministries and uh, your little one. And, thank you. Uh, yeah. Likewise. May the, Lord's, may the Lord's face shine upon you and uh, be gracious to you and show you peace and all those wonderful things. And uh, for those of you listening or watching, thank you so much for your support. Uh we're very, very grateful for that, too, and we hope you've been blessed uh, by this conversation with uh, me and Andrew. Until next time, aloha. Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glow's House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glow's House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glow'sahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.